The South Island and its peoples. The South Island and its peoples it is something of a cliché, in New Zealand's South Island, that Christchurch is English and Dunedin Scottish. Indeed, for a long time, the different national origins of early settler communities, including a significant number of Chinese gold miners, entirely overshadowed the fact that Maori also inhabited the South Island for some seven or eight hundred years and were the first colonizers, having navigated their way there from the tropical Pacific. Maori culture was seen as something associated with the North Island and the boiling mud pools of Rotorua, not the South Island, where, indeed, colonial poets wrote about an empty land, untouched by humans until they came along. It was true that the frost-sensitive crops brought down from the tropics by the ancestors of the Maori could only be grown in the North Island and in a few places in the northern half of the South Island, by and large, and, indeed, only with a certain amount of encouragement as well. But even the chillier parts of the South Island of 700 to 800 years ago were capable of supporting a large population of hunter-gatherers. For in the days when the island really was untouched by human hand it was full of plump, easily caught flightless birds, of which the emu-like moa are simply the best known. On top of that, there was also an abundance of seals, penguins, ocean fish and freshwater eels. A number of native plants could be eaten as well. Regrettably, this abundance did not endure. The moa and some other flightless species became extinct or, as with the takei, nearly so. Fires were also led to flush out the game or prepare the ground for whatever crops might grow. Australian Aborigines have long used the same method, with care. But the early Maori, who came from islands with a different climate and mix of vegetation, seem to have been unaware of the ease with which fires could get out of control in New Zealand, the South Island, in particular. The Great Fires of Timadio, as Maori lore records them, resulted in the permanent deforestation of many of the drier parts of the South Island. Later British colonists would perpetrate the same mistake in both main islands of New Zealand. Striving to clear small areas of bush they would inadvertently set fire to large, valuable forests. The rise of the Waitaha culture in the meantime, as the South Islanders were accidentally denuding the land and running out of game, the more settled and agricultural Maori of the North were becoming more numerous. Before long, the center of gravity of Maori population passed, overwhelmingly to the north. But to say that the center of gravity passed to the north is not to say that South Island Maori faded away completely. Instead, a distinctive culture known as that of the Waitaha people came into being, one of its products being a form of art that looks quite different to the classic Maori art of the North Island. Here's an example e from one of the caves near Timaru, where most of the surviving Waitaha rock art is to be found in the form of a classic 1960s stamp. There have been more recent stamp series featuring Waitaha rock art, as well. The Waitaha were also responsible for much lore about the South Island. The Great Lakes of the Interior were, supposedly, dug out by the ancestor Reikaihotu, captain of one of the voyaging canoes by which the ancestors of the Maori arrived from tropical Polynesia, with his magical ko or digging stick, and filled with food for the future. The Great Fires of Timadio are a more historical account. The Canterbury Plains were known as the seedbed of Waitaha before they became the Canterbury Plains. Aoraki, the Maori name for Mount Cook, does not mean piercer of the clouds as literal translator might think, but refers to another ancestral hero, Aurangi, who once stood on the highest point of the keel of an overturned canoe. For the South Island is not only known traditionally as the waters of Greenstone, or the canoe of Maui, but also as Tewaka'o Aoraki, the canoe of Aoraki, i.e., Aurangi. The second wave of Maori colonization in the 1700s, by the Western calendar, an iwi or tribe that was to become the dominant one in the South Island, and Gaitahu, 
began to immigrate from their original North Island home. This was probably a response to overpopulation in the North and the by now relatively empty and beckoning nature of the South. Ngaitahu tradition holds that their people's colonization of the South Island was not so much a matter of conquest as of intermarriage and adoption of Waitahaways. Ngaitahu did fight a rival North Island iwi, Ngati Mamo, that was busy doing the same thing. Rangitane, an iwi from the district that would later come to be known as Wellington, moved into the prow. Ngaitahu also fragmented, splitting off the Putini Ngaitahu in Westland. The best-known peculiarity of the South Island dialects is that NG often becomes K. So Ngaitahu are just as often called Kaitahu and their rivals Katimamo. A hard G also crops up in place of K in a number of South Island place names and plant names, like Otago, Otaku, and Mataguri, a fierce thornbush known elsewhere as Tumataguru or Matagura or, less flatteringly, Wild Irishman, though that name is neither Maori nor official. Here and there the R in Maori words is also replaced with L, whence the rather Hawaiian-sounding name of Lake Waihola for example. The Muscovy invasions in the early 19th century, the South Island tribes were decimated, or worse, for decimation literally means the killing of one in ten, in a series of raids carried out by North Island Maori from 1828 onwards. These new invaders from the North Island were armed with muskets, which one of their chiefs had even sailed all the way to England to purchase and bring back. The North Island Maori eventually departed, leaving the South Islanders in a weakened position. From purchase to pop only a decade or so later, at the beginning of the 1840s, British government purchase agents arrived, and soon acquired almost the whole of the South Island very cheaply. Ostensibly, reserves that were still quite large were to be left by the British for the indigenous inhabitants. These reserves were known as tents because the idea was that the British would only take nine acres or so out of every ten they'd formerly purchased, and leave roughly a tenth behind for the original inhabitants. The exact boundaries of the tenths would be decided after the purchase, because the island hadn't yet been surveyed by modern methods. This wasn't an unreasonable idea in the abstract, as the permanent habitations of the South Island Maori only amounted to a tiny fraction of the island's area in any case, mostly on the coasts, up rivers and beside lakes. It seems, as I understand it, that the South Island Maori thought they were selling off the more barren parts and mountainous parts of the island to people who wanted to run cheap, a win-win outcome if in fact that had been the case. Nor did they realize that future owners would probably try to ban their occasional foraging and greenstone prospecting expeditions into the wilderness, a totally unreasonable thing to do by Maori standards. The Maori concept of land sale was closer to what the British would have termed a pastoral lease, had everyone understood things perfectly. The amount of money that local Maori received for selling the South Island, or nearly all of it, was, furthermore, not something that they would have viewed as full and final settlement, but rather a sort of peppercorn sum that was merely intended to cement a fruitful economic partnership with the Europeans. What happened next, even before the decade of the 1840s was out, was that a great flood of colonists started to turn up with the intention of founding towns and cities in all the favorable spots where the Maori had their pa. Many South Island Maori were evicted from their pa, the obvious nuclei of the tents if the bargain had been fully kept. And which they would have kept if the British had indeed only been interested in farming sheep. They were evicted, typically, by founders who decided that the old Maori village was a good place for a town square and had to go accordingly. Before long, most of the inhabitants of the burgeoning town would have no idea that a Maori village had ever stood on the square. A square that perhaps now boasted a whiskery and respectable statue of a founder who had led his people to the promised land, but nothing to indicate the former village. As for the South Island Maori, 
they either went to live with relatives in places the tide of colonization had not yet reached or were assimilated into the culture of the frontier in the same way that their ancestors had been assimilated into the ways of the Waitaha, learning English and forgetting what their own place names meant. The rise of a protest movement and its allies in June 1877, a South Island Maori leader named Hipotameroa led 150 of his people on a haikoi, meaning protest march or pilgrimage, to Te Aumarama, an inland locality on the Waitaki River now known as the town of Omarama. The protesters were seeking to reclaim land that they regarded as rightfully theirs. In August 1879 Tameroa's people were evicted by armed constables from Amaru and local reinforcements, and forced to walk 170 kilometers down the river to the coast, where they established a new settlement just south of the river mouth. It was the middle of winter, and perhaps the closest incident to the episode known in America as the Trail of Tears. Indeed, the parallel is reinforced by the coincidence that Waitaki means water, or river, of tears. Here is a photograph taken some 50 years later at a reunion of the families who took part in the protests of 1877-79. It was on a signboard at Lake Pukaki, and is credited to the Bill Dacker collection at the Toitu Otaga Settlers Museum. And yet at the exact same time, two government commissioners named Thomas Henry Smith and Francis Edward, Frank, Nairn were looking into the grievances of people like Tameroa to see whether they were in fact justified. Smith, from Auckland was a former native land court judge, who also holds the distinction of being the author of the Maori language version of the New Zealand national anthem, the one that begins the Iowa Ottawa. Nairn was an artist and nature. A list from Nelson who had worked as a young man, in the 1840s, with Walter Mantell, the chief government purchaser of South Island land from 1848 onwards, and thus had first-hand familiarity with the whole business. A self-portrait done by Frank Nairn. Official credit, Nairn. Francis Edward, 1819-1910. Nairn, Francis Edward, 1819-1910. Self-portrait. 1860s. Ref. G489. Alexander Turnbull Library, Wellington, New Zealand. Slash record slash 223301 One of the most significant South Island purchases, including the one that affected Tameroa's people, Smith and Nairn reported in 1881, that, we consider that the promises made to the native owners of the territory which is held to have been ceded, must be held to amount to a distinct pledge that the lands included therein would be so dealt with by the Pakeha, i.e., the British or the European, that the Maori would share them with him, and that the consequences of the surrender would, under such administration, be so advantageous to the latter that, in comparison with future advantages, the money payment offered ought to be regarded as, and really was, but a trifling part of the consideration. In other words, the South Island Maori hadn't handed over the control of the island they inhabited to British colonizers, for what was indeed a peppercorn sum, with the intention of becoming paupers in their own land. In colonial times the South Island was often known as the Middle Island, since it lies between the North Island and Rakshura Sweet Wart Island. This name was reflected in the blunt title Mantel had borne in the late 1840s, namely, Commissioner for Extinguishing Native Titles, Middle Island. Well in any case, Mantel had, over the years, come to share the view that the South or Middle Island Maori had effectively been tricked and he, himself, used as a mouthpiece for empty promises of future cooperation and development aid, though he was too close to the whole business to sit on the commission that investigated his purchases, it goes without saying. The Smith-Nairn Commission took note of a widespread early days view that Maori and Pakeha were supposed to prosper together in a model colony, 
a view that had enabled the Pakeha to gain much land from initially friendly Mariad peppercorn prices in both main islands. Not anticipated at first would be the way that the colonists who got in on the ground floor would trouser enormous increases in land value and other windfalls as immigrants kept flocking in and as the land was subdivided, while the Maori often got nothing out of all this progress apart from the possibility of various menial jobs on the land of a colonial aristocracy. Even the younger generation of colonists were starting to feel locked out of prosperity by the great ascendancy of those who'd got land cheaply off the Maori in the old days. A Wellington businessman and politician of Maori descent, Waiparata, had brought a court case over that very issue just a couple of years before in 1877. P. Arata argued, in essence, that the sharing of future prosperity was implied by the Treaty of Waitangi that had been signed between Maori chiefs and the Crown in 1840, a treaty generally regarded as New Zealand's foundational document. The first generation of colonists who'd stepped off the boat in the 1840s couldn't expect to monopolize the whole country against the claims of Maori who'd handed over land cheaply and, in some cases, even for nothing on the expectation that they would prosper from a growing population of colonists, and who had therefore effectively been cheated when they didn't. Barada had been rebuffed in the colonial courts, which took a narrow view of things. All the same, Smith and Nairn took the view that the implied contract of co-prosperity was real and foundational and that the government to which they reported had a duty of implementing the virtue known in Maori as a tahai, which they translated as kindly care, and which may also be translated as hospitality, in making sure that Maori and Pakeha really did prosper together in coming decades, and to take whatever steps were necessary to make sure that that happened in future. A tahai appears in one of the eight lines of Smith's anthem, Kia tau to a tahai, may your tahai ever flow. It seems to have been a value he regarded as important. The 150-year wait for justice nothing much came of the Smith-Nairn Commission's recommendations, any more than its existence stayed the native minister, John Shi Han, who was perfectly aware that the commission appointed be his own government was in session, from ordering armed police to evict Tameroa and his followers in the dead of winter. 4. The more high-minded sort of settler would always be in tension with those who took a finder's keeper's view of land and its windfalls. Or, who held that it was time to forget about old grievances and move on which is all very well if you're the one who's now got the legal right to erect keep-out signs and call on the cops to enforce them, as opposed to the victims who remember. Not until 1998, in the 150th anniversary year of Mantel's most significant purchases, would there be an agreed settlement off claims of the largest South Island iwi, Ngai Tahu, and even then, I wonder if it was a matter of settling for what Ngai Tahu could get in practice, the horse having bolted so long ago. The amount settled for was NZ $170 million, with a relativity clause for top-ups if other iwi later gained much more per head. The money was invested on behalf of the Holangai Tahu population, about 55,000 today. According to Tayara, the online encyclopedia of New Zealand, Ngai Tahu have undergone a significant revival since the settlement. One aspect of the cultural resurgence of Ngai Tahu was the revival of the traditional marae. At Takahanga and Kaikoura and at Bluff new buildings have been constructed. Onaku, near Akaroa, acquired a new carved house. In Christchurch, the sub-tribe Ngai Twariri have also met the mana of an urban marae, Rihua. At Waihau, Arowenua, Taumuchu, Kokorata, Twaiwi and Mangamanu existing buildings have been improved or extended. The Puketaraki people of Otago have replaced their original meeting house. Sharing the Atahai I've mentioned the younger generation of colonial immigrants who began to feel locked out, themselves, by those who'd surfed the wave of rising land values since the 1840s. Disputes between forerunner and newcomer settlers, 
and battles for good jobs and affordable housing for all, would set the tone for much of New Zealand's politics in the 20th century. Some of the leading social activists of 20th century New Zealand also came from the South Island. And indeed, even, in the persons of the three main architects of New Zealand's 1938 Social Security Act jointly known as the Three Wise Men of Guru, from the very Waitaki Valley itself, as though a torch had somehow been passed down from Tameroa's day. Here's a video about an art exhibition on the Three Wise Men of Kurokolan arguments about the importance of making sure that prosperity is widely shared do not only apply to historical disputes between Pakeha and Mari. The issue is one that exists everywhere and always. In that sense, it even continues to find an echo in 21st century debates about how millennials have been shut out of the housing market and forced to subsist on insecure jobs. Should land, living space and opportunity be seen as so many trinkets to be deep?